Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I usually say I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University, but today I'm coming to you live from my house in Sydney. And so you might hear some noise in the background from my four-year-old daughter or my six-month-old son. Uh, And for that, I apologize uh, ahead of time. And I especially apologize to the person I'm speaking to today. Matt Taylor is a professor of history at De Montfort University, and he is the author of just, um, well, I was joking with him before the recording, uh, the book I wish I had read most before I wrote my own book. (laughs) His book is called Sport and the Homefront, Wartime Britain at Play, 1939-1945. It's out with Rutledge with their studies in modern British history uh, in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. Finally, and sorry, uh, I've had to. I have to apologize to him again because I've canceled on Matt. I think twice now. <laughs> so thank you for finally for finally um, for finally getting on the phone with me after I've been so rude. <laughs> nah, not at all. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you finally, Kate. Yeah, I, I have to say, like I was saying to you before, I love this book, um, and it there was so much uh, I, I drew from it personally, and I wanted to know how you developed this project. Uh, where did it come from? Um, how did you conceive of it? Is is um, it something you've been working on for a long time, or was its generation really rapid? Um, the former, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, is it this like like quite a lot of books, I suppose, has quite a, had quite a long gestation period. Um, so in actual fact, the first, it's linked back to the first piece of academic work I ever did, which is while I was doing my, my PhD, which is on, was on the kind of uh, social history of um, uh, football in England. Um, and in the context of that, um, myself and my supervisor at the time, Pierre Lanfranchi, were, were invited to contribute uh, um, a chapter to a book that colleagues at, at De Montfort were putting together on the kind of um, cultural and social history of the Second World War. And they wanted something on football. And so that's when I first kind of, it was kind of aside from my, it wasn't the same period as my um, PhD, slightly slightly afterwards. So I did a little bit of work on that with, with Pierre. And I thought, mm, I, think there's, I think there's a little bit more to find out here. And uh, in the meantime, you know, did another couple of, book projects um, and I came back to it around about so that was in that, that was initially in the 1990s I came back around about 2010 I think it was you know what's my next book project going to be after finishing quite a, quite a big book on the on the on the history of, uh, of football in 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 Britain called the association game I was thinking well what do I do next and I thought well hang on there, there may be something here there may be a couple of articles um, did the did the articles? Uh, did did a bit of research, and I think the process, in in a way, was all the time thinking. Well, 
<clears throat> might this be enough for a book? Might this be enough for a book? And if I'm being honest, that continued to be the question I asked myself up to the the uh, the end of you know the completion of the book and possibly post publication as well. I was still thinking, you know, is there enough? And I think I've just about proved there is enough. Um, but yeah, it, it was a project that I was I, I, I was interested in from from the, my first research work. Um, I became very interested in the kind of broader um, historiography, um, not on sport, but on on the kind of uh, the home front and the social history, uh, social and cultural history of the home front. And I was increasingly thinking to myself, well, great books here, but there's a gap. They say very little about leisure and they say very little about sport specifically. And I think sport does add significantly to what what we know about then what we can know about um, uh, the, how people um, behaved in the home front, but what they thought and how it connected to to notions of social citizenship, the nation, um, and and various broader, I think, research questions. So, so that's how it came about, really, Key. Yeah, I'm. I mean, obviously, you know, my own interest lies very much yeah. in the same area, and I do wonder. Like I have my own thoughts, but I, I wonder what you're thinking. Why, in this story of the Second World War, why has sport been so neglected? I was shocked when I found out how many people were playing sports in France. And I was equally shocked in reading your book and finding out just how vibrant sport was um, in, in Britain, because I was under the impression that it even now, you know, until reading it, that it was not as prevalent. So why has sport been so neglected as part of these stories? Yeah, well, I, I think it partly. I think I address this to a degree in the kind of kind of introduction to uh, to the book and in various other. I think it partly comes from, I suppose, both both the kind of historiography on sport and the his, and those who have written, you know, more broadly on the kind of social and cultural history of the war. Um, in terms of sport, I just think that there seems to be this notion, um, certainly in, in in terms of work on Britain, that that the, the set, that, you know, there's not much to say about the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, um, people played a little bit, you know, the government tended to be, you know, generally recognise it as, as being of some use to the war effort. But, you know, there wasn't a great deal of debate. There wasn't a great deal going on. I think that's the other view. And, and I think kind of that fits in many ways to the fact that, you know, that the, in terms of the key sports, you know, none of the, none of the international matches or key matches that took place are recognised as genuine caps for players or genuine, you know, they're the wartime competitions, the wartime finals, you know, and that they don't, they don't, um, they don't go into the, in the, into the record books. They're not statistically recognised. So the idea that this is a kind of an interruption, I think, comes from those, in inverted commas, sports historians working on the area. And I think, I think for those more generally, um, I think there is an element of a continuation of this idea that, you know, well, how important can something which really was relatively trivial compared with the other important aspects of people's life, how important can that be? Um, but, but then if we think about, you know, how, you know, the huge amount of work that's been done on film and cinema and things like this, you know, which were, were which recognised almost from, from the beginning as being extremely important, not just in terms of propaganda, but in how people... Um, how people engaged with the war and how you know and and the, you know how they how they dealt with it in terms of their free time and how they took time away and so it so it is you know it, it's an odd thing that that sport uh, you know has been maybe there's a sense that enough has been covered in terms of um you know looking at looking at other forms of um uh, entertainment you know which which has been you know certainly cinema has been covered very well but I would suggest that you know alongside sport other forms of kind of entertainment and leisure also you know still have their histories to be written I I, I want to really uh, I mean we're on new books and sports I think I'm preaching to the choir a little bit I'm sure when I say this but I want to stress uh, Matt your book is not just it's not a kind of although it is quite comprehensive in many ways and I mean that in a, as a compliment um, it's not a compendium of sporting events. It's, it's deeply um, argumentative about what sport means for this notion of the people's war. 
and how sport helps to shape or to um, pull apart the ties of unity that people assume were generated by the wartime uh, in Britain. So I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what were your broader like theoretical aims? Like what was it that you were trying to show us through sport? Um, does, I, I know that it's not just that it happened, but I guess I'm asking you, give people yeah. the big thrust. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I suppose it was to, to um, it came from this inkling, I think, that I had when I first started kind of, you know, uncovering the what happened element of it. And actually, you know, you're absolutely correct. The what happened is, it's just, a, it's, it's just a starting point. You know, it's a starting point for them realizing, okay, there was some sport going on. And even when there wasn't, you know, people debated, you know, if there were restrictions, you know, why, and et cetera, et cetera. And I think, for me, I was I became really interested in these. I obviously the idea of the People's War, which has been much debated, and um, you know, it, it, it's it, I suppose in many ways kind of its reality as against the way in which um, you know in the post-war period, you know, the idea was was has really been developed and has become an important part of people's memories and popular memory of the Second World War. Um, but I was interested in in connecting it to some of the ideas around I think citizenship and um, uh, national identity. And as you say, the kind of, the, the notions of unity, but also the fractures that existed in kind of the notion of, of, of the nation, what the, na- what the nation means at a time of war. And I was really interested, uh, to give an idea of kind of the, kind of the, the books that influenced, I was really particularly kind of influenced by Sonia Rose's work. Um, which people's war her book which people's war which was really very much about that issue about um you know the 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 tensions between calls to unity in terms of the notion of of, you know we're involved in a people's war but 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 within that also the, the 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 obvious and clear tensions between you know a range of things in in relation to gender she talks about gender she talks talks about um uh, the, the split between city and countryside, the split between regions, um, issues of race, which do feature a little bit in, in my book as well. And so I think it was, it was that, what, that was one of the big ideas that I wanted to explore in relation to, to sport, because it seemed to me very clear that um, uh, in, in the rhetoric of, um, uh, of what sport meant, for those who both at various times who kind of supported but also challenged it, and um, it was it was connected very closely to these broader debates about the People's War, these broader debates about you know what what are we contributing to the war effort and and how are we being in inverted commas good citizens, uh, and actually you know um, keeping your sports club going, you know some people interpreted as very closely linked to to good citizenship. But at other times of the war, you know, playing to, to you know, going to going to bet, for instance, on the dogs or get, or spending your afternoon at the dog <laughs> track could be considered quite the opposite. That was, you know, that was a bad that was a bad that, that was someone who wasn't con- contributing to, to, to the war in any way. And so it shifted at different times. But it's clear that that that's because sport meant meant things to, to lots of people and even for those for whom it didn't mean a lot, they recognised it, it. It was important to those who who were significant to the war effort, kind of war workers, servicemen, and women. You know, it was absolutely clear that that it fed into these broader debates. And I suppose, yeah, it's not. I suppose it's not. I'm not answering in terms of a big theoretical approach, but I was very interested in kind of testing those sorts of ideas, which have really come to the fore in some of the best writing on the kind of social and cultural history of wartime Britain, and really testing to what extent sport um, both fitted a uh, uh, challenge, but, but, but kind of added to, to, to those debates and to what we know in terms of those things. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you were extremely successful. And um, the, the book itself, uh, for people who haven't read it or who would like to know more about it, it's actually structured really thematically. Um, and so when I first looked at the organization, I was like, oh, this is, I wasn't anticipating it when I when I first picked it up, but it, I thought it really worked well. And so the first chapter in some ways deals with, this is the chapter sport, the government and civilian morale deals with that big question. I mean, why play sport it, during a war at all? 
Right. And so I guess, you know, I, I'd start us out with that question. Um, you know, how strong was the movement to kind of ban sport during the war? What, what was the, you know, kind of initial impetus for, for banning it or keeping it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, and that, and that in a sense was the, was the first chapter that I worked on as well. When I was talking about kind of the articles that I initially started on, I kind of began there because in, in one sense that was the broader frame, I suppose, to, for understanding lots of the other issues. And in terms of kind of, you know, archival material as well, it, you know, there, you know, it allowed me to go and, you know, look at, you know, fairly substantial number of files in the National Archives, which were linked to, to Home Office and Ministry of Home Security files on on the three really significant sports that they were concerned about, which was which was soccer, um, horse racing and greyhound racing. Um, and so, yeah, the, in terms of the, 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 how it fits in with, you know, these debates, you know, should we play and, and the movement kind of for and against, I suppose the general sense, which I think is correct, if we compare if we compare it in Britain to to the second, attitudes in the Second World War compared to the First World War, is that is that generally there was generally there was support for the notion that there is some value in in playing sport, um, and partly that linked to the notion uh, uh, you know the chapter is based around this idea of civilian morale, which is not which doesn't come from you know it's not um, a retrospective imposition of this notion. This was very much discussed by the government, by social research organisations, which were, which worked for the government, such as Mass Observation, which features quite a lot in the book, um, you know, and other, other research agencies. And it was really important because there was, it was linked to this concern um, about what was going to happen when the war started, that, that the, fear, the, the fear that there would be the immediate threat of, of air attack and bombing. And so issues of safety became really important in that sense. And so plans had been made to... Um, to uh, make sure, certainly in the, in the early weeks of war, that all entertainments and places of entertainment and sporting events and things like this would would cease in the first few weeks. That was there's a sense in some of the writing on that 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 was kind of worked out, you know, amongst the authorities, you know, in the first few days. Yeah, not really. It had it, already been decided. It had already been decided, kind of a year before that that that's what would happen on the outbreak of war, um, and so there wasn't. There wasn't a huge amount of um, of challenge, uh, you know, to, to the fact that that, that initially uh, place uh, sports places and places of entertainment were were closed down. But there was a recognition that that would soon be eased. Um, and so, what then happens, I think, is that there are there are um, there are di- there are particular groups that are that are campaigning for for more sport. The um, uh, sports authorities are engaged with. The government uh, at national level, and then you know later, kind of, kind of, kind of at local level with different authorities, and it very much depends, you know, attitudes um, centrally amongst politicians and 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 more more broadly, I suppose, amongst those who were pushing for for more sport to take place. It very much depended on different periods of the war, and so there was a shift. It was it was a forever shifting um, um, story, really. Um, in terms of you know how how government policy, for instance, de- developed, it's not enough to say you know the government generally you know the government recognised that sport was a good thing, so let's give as much opportunity as possible to do that. That was their kind of default position, but it, but that varied at significant times in the war. So you know at the beginning of the war there were restrictions, then they were eased generally, and then a number of those restrictions came back um, in the summer of, of 1940 with the with the fall of France and kind of, kind of significant um, concerns about um, uh, a, a, an imminent invasion. And they were eased at various times. And then they came back very, the restrictions came back very strongly at the beginning of 1942 um, with the, um, uh, you know, uh, reverses in the war, fall of Singapore. And particularly a lot of concerns about um, the seriousness of, of the war effort on the home front and that certain certain groups and certain people weren't giving as much as they could um, to, to the war effort. And actually, you know, certain sports became the focus of, of attention 
at, at, at that time, particularly kind of kind of boxing that was taking place at the Albert Hall uh, in in you know afternoons when war workers you know should have been at work, um, and and so there was a, there was another kind of push to restrict. Um, uh, you know, at, at that point in 1942. So it was a shifting story, which makes it very interesting, I think, because because uh, the arguments uh, aren't consistent and they change at, at various times. And the the emphasis, you know, placed on certain uh, on certain parts of the argument, you know, are, are more prominent um, at, at certain points than they than they are elsewhere. So I think I think it very much varies, and it also varies. Um, on the basis of sport, you know, this the, the first chapter really kind of leads, also leads the reader through the fact that you know there were different attitudes within government, you know, to to uh, in, in relation to sports like soccer, um, which was very much you know recognised as being as being key to to the morale of the the imagined male, and it was generally imagined as a as, as the male war worker initially and the serviceman. Um, Horse racing, which had a lot of governmental support anyway, but it was realised its links with gambling and things like that. They needed to be more careful with it. And greyhound racing, which had very little support within the government. And so that kind of was hardest hit. So, yeah, it, it, it kind of varied. I think the variety and the, the shift, as I say, the shifting story that I tell is, re is really, you know, how, how you understand, you know, the, the, how attitudes varied at different times. Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes out throughout the book, um, especially in this first chapter, you're kind of setting the stage for it, is just how much, um, you know, within the context of this idea of the People's War, how much actual kind of layering and nuance there is. The, you're talking about social class, you're talking about region, you're talking about um, gendered notions of sport, always a lot of commentary on, on women in sport uh, in the book. And uh, also the timeline the sport, different kinds of sport. And um, also I, one thing that really surprised me in reading it coming from the French perspective where I had to kind of needle out some of this, uh, but just the diversity of different government agencies that had a kind of finger in the pie of, yeah. of sport. Um, it, I was honestly <laughs> flipping back and forth uh, to keep some of the acronyms in, in my yeah. head <laughs> because there were so many different groups that were uh, yeah, I mean, I mean that's that's certainly something that I didn't anticipate, and it's and certainly the book. Just, I mean, to give you give an idea about you know for those who haven't you know like in terms of source, I mean, it, it is that, that you know I do use kind of official government sources, you know, various points throughout the book, um, but but they're kind of that in, I intersperse that with kind of you know personal sources and things like that, which I'm kind of really interested in. But very much this chapter very much is based on. Uh, uh, certainly a part of it is kind of tracing the way in which the government policy developed. And what I was very surprised about, uh, you know, as you say, you were, I was when I was doing the research was how many different government departments were involved in the decisions that were made and the fact that they were competing effectively at various times. So, um, you know, it was well known that certain departments such as the, um, uh, the Ministry of Labour, um, and the Ministry of Health, but particularly the Ministry of Labour, were very pro-sport in any context, you know, and, and, and maintained that position almost from the beginning. Whereas um, other other bodies, um, the the service, um, the, the service um, uh, departments, so the Army, Navy, and Air Force were involved in these decisions as well. Obviously, they were much more circumspect about it. But the most um, uh, the most kind of powerful, certainly as as the war developed by 1943, 1944, the most powerful of the government departments, which kind of opposed um, uh, war, uh, sorry, sorry, sport going ahead as much as possible and kind of uh, were very much in favour of restrictions, was the Ministry of War Transport. The Ministry of War Transport became very, very powerful in 43 and 44 and one of the interesting things that was one of the one of the key figures there um was a chap called um uh, philip noel baker who was a former um olympic athlete uh, and later became very significant in kind of post-war sports policy um but he was kind of the kind of the key, the key kind of um opponent of increasing the amount of um, uh, sport taking place because of you know transport reasons. So yeah, the range of uh, of agencies just within the government 
is really an interesting factor, uh, you know, um, of understanding the, the kind of complexity of, you know, how policy was developed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the things that comes out in your book too, uh, and I think we, I could, I was just you talking about this is making me kind of flip back in my head and laugh at the number of times in which people were getting in trouble for driving too far <laughs> in their cars, the civil defense driving too far to go to matches. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 the story that you're telling is not, of course, just one of top-down kind of imposition of sports, but also the kind of dramatic interest in sports, despite the war, from ordinary people. And so your, your, your second chapter, which I really liked, um, is about sport, sporting clubs, and carry, you call it carrying on. So I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, what were the challenges that sporting clubs faced, both material challenges, uh, challenges that the state was um, putting forward, things like that, and how that they tried to overcome those and if they were able or unable to do that. Yeah, no, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, <laughs> this was one of the, that was one of the chapters, I think, where, where I was saying earlier on that, you know, I was, I was trying to work out, you know, is there, what is there, what, what, what is there to find out here? I really wanted it to not be um, uh, a book which was, a, which, which was top down and that, that it really was, um, you know, about people's individual experiences and t- in terms of sport that it very much looked at the grassroots. That's sometimes difficult in terms of, you know, finding archival sources. But I think actually there's there's quite a lot to, to help by looking looking at, at, at the material that's available in the Second World War in terms of not just kind of club archives and how the, the press dealt with it, but the fact that we've got um, some kind of useful materials from um, the uh, National Playing Fields Association uh, records and and mass observation and various things like that, which were interested in sports. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the first issue that that um, kind of grassroots clubs had was simply the de- the decision itself: do we carry on or don't we carry on? And generally, they got the thumbs up from the government. I say it varied at different times, and they got the thumbs up generally from national bodies. But even so, clubs often made decisions based on uh, part. I mean, what I was really interested in was how significant, you know, what happened in in the First World War was uh, on kind of both helping kind of club committees make their decisions about what they would do in the Second World War, but also in providing, you know, the language, the same language that was used. So quite often um, in making their kind of statements to the press or to or to um, uh, ordinary members, committees would kind of would kind of repeat, you know, the approach that they'd taken last time, or kind of slightly modify it, but refer to their, their previous approach. So certain clubs decided not to continue playing because they'd done the same in 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 1914 to 18. Um, others kind of kind of adopted, you know, you know, we will continue. We did this in, in uh, earlier you know, and would kind of develop a similar sort of language. So although the situation, the context was different, um, the First World War was important as a kind of precedent. So that was the first thing. But then I guess there were there were a number of, uh, of kind of justifications for clubs carrying on. Um, and a lot of them did mirror, I suppose, what um, government departments said and, and other advocates said at, at central level. It was linked to improving physical fitness, it was linked to providing those in important um, uh, uh, war jobs and services with a break from their war duties. That was a kind of first significant justification. But really interesting was the, was the other two, in a sense, that they there was a real focus on, you know, we need to keep clubs alive. And the reason we need to keep clubs alive is precisely for those who can't attend at the moment, precisely for those overseas in the forces. You know, we're doing it for the boys and that was that was a, a really um, powerful and frequent argument, and then that was also linked to the fact that this was also these clubs also needed to be kept alive 
for younger generations. So there was a lot of significant, there's a lot of emphasis on youth and the importance of, uh, of those coming through. And, you know, we, we, you know, you know, we have to keep these clubs alive to allow, you know, to, not just for the future of sport in this country, but kind of the, the, the future of, um, uh, you know, uh, manhood, of, British manhood and womanhood in the sense. Um, in terms of the restrictions, I mean, there were, there were financial restrictions, which were really important kind of um, membership problems. One of the key aspects, I suppose, about um, the kind of geography uh, of the population in, in um Second World War Britain. Obviously, lots of lots of people um, in the forces were away from home at various times. But many, many even in the forces would spend a lot of the war um, at home on on the home front. Um, but the, but a really significant um, aspect of people's experience was was mobility. People were moving if they were in the forces. They were moving for work. Um, often, you know, workplaces would move, you know, from areas which were safe, uh, less safe to, to areas which were safer. So the mobility of people obviously made um, the the uh, uh, made it very difficult for lots of clubs to exist in terms of simply having enough people to play and having the finances. Obviously, where if people move to certain places, then there would be new uh, members potentially. So so finances were often a, a problem, and clubs used a variety of kind of ways of of kind of dealing with that. Getting getting people who were who were non-playing members to contribute, uh, often reducing the amount of um, uh, of subscriptions so that you know people who were struggling could could still could still be uh, uh, play a part. And um, so there were the membership problems. There was also the significance of the entertainment tax, which would, had been a factor in um in 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 relation to kind of British british entertainment and british sport since uh, 1916 since the first world war and so there were campaigns to reduce the um size uh, of the the contribution that clubs needed to make to the entertainment tax and then there were the very practical things about rationing of um food you know food that was put on for for visiting teams and clothing and equipment you know that that had a significant effect on um on sports clubs, you know, uh, from from the very top. I mean, famously, kind of Manchester United, when when the Old Trafford was bombed, lost thirteen sets of of jerseys and, uh, and and kit, and so had to borrow kit from other clubs. And then, when rationing on clothing really <laughs> took hold, uh, clubs basically asked for their kits back. So a lot of these teams, even at the high, at the higher levels, were kind of short of kit. And this, this was even more significant at lower levels. So there was a lot of the campaigning that um, governing bodies uh, at, at sport were doing was really with the Board of Trade to actually uh, manage to, to acquire a few more clothing coupons. And clubs would even, you know, ask their supporters to, to, to pass on any spare clothing coupons they had. But that in itself became sometimes quite um, controversial. Um, you know, in the sense that there would be complaints and letters to the press that you know why why are why are sports clubs being prioritised when our ordinary workers, our ordinary <coughs> sorry, our ordinary coal miners and and people in in important professions are having to having to go to work in rags. And so, at the heart of all these debates was this notion, I think, which which fed through. Um, you know, all aspects of kind of of, of kind of uh, uh, domestic life in Britain was was the notion of, of equality and the and the and the idea that you know we need to ensure that there's fairness and equality amongst different groups, which often wasn't achieved, but was really at the heart of lots of these debates. So, so clubs have really significant problems. Many clubs, um, you know, cease to exist. But I think one of the interesting things was how many clubs managed to to. Um, keep functioning and keep going under these incredibly trying circumstances. Yeah. The one uh, that comes through, I think pretty strongly throughout your book, which is that um, in difficult circumstances, oftentimes club leaders, individual athletes, sporting officials, um, they often work together or, or um, work if not together, then they work creatively to try to keep, things alive. I'm, um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, um, you know, one of the, the kind of fights that you, I think you can see this kind of contestation, but also creativity and also kind of e- debates about equality is the, the fight over Sunday sport. Uh, 
um, which was really, it's not in this chapter, but it's kind of a similar, a similar kind of set of issues. Um, you know, can we play sports on Sunday? Who can play sports on Sunday? What sports can be played on Sunday? <laughs> and, yeah, and how, um, and, and, and what regions? <laughs> and, and <laughs> um, so you get that kind of, you get that kind of contestation, um, but also uh, cleverness in some, in some of the circumstances to, to keep sport alive, because for a lot of people, it was a, a very important part of their wartime experience that came yeah, no, really strongly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think, yeah, that the, the, you know, it's interesting because I, I suppose many kind of episodes in the book are about contest, you know, contestation over resources, contestation over, over space uh, and over, and over, yeah, the, and over kind of traditions, which I suppose in the sense of kind of um, what we do with, with, with Sunday sport, can we, you know, given the fact that most most clubs and gambling bodies and councils initially uh, were very reticent to open facilities on Sundays um that but it led to you know a broader kind of opening up of you know well what 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 do we stand for what do we represent both as a nation you know and more more you know more significantly kind of at, lo- at local level as a kind of council and things like that you know how do we balance the importance to our nation of keeping people fit and happy and being being good and uh, uh, you know um, focused war workers, as against the the uh, the impact that people you know play, playing on a Sunday might have on those you know you know who, who are very religious and kind of you know regard it as as a, a significant um, uh, you know a significant. A problem in terms of the way they see the nation and the way they see um, the way in which even even a nation at war should maintain traditions. Part of the things we're fighting for are many people argue are certain traditions, and we can't let those go, even in the most trying of circumstances. So, so yeah, these 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 challenges, which which what took place on um, on, a, on a kind of they do take place on a national stage. But the very interesting thing, you know, is the fact that that quite often these decisions are being made at Kind of regional and local levels, you know, with slightly different um, uh, outcomes, you know, in each place. So, you know, Sunday sport might might be allowed at certain times in in one city. You know, twenty miles down the road, there might be a different viewpoint. So, so I, I think did, all I did love like the one guy in Birmingham just blocking all of Sunday sport or whatever. You know, he's he's in charge yeah. and he he doesn't like that. So, no one in yeah. Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the you know some of the amateur associations and yeah, yeah, just said, well, yeah, you know, we <laughs> this is our tradition, so we will, you know, we will, we will not. Do, and then there were connections made to you know, well, we we represent the nation then more fully than down in London where they're allowing it to go ahead. Well, you know, and so there were kind of these anti-metropolitan undertones to a lot of the arguments quite often. So and those those things, you know, are, are part of the debates as well. I I almost felt like that could have been. Um, in your in your subtitle, even this how how rich um, the kind of local versus metropolitan um, contests can be, and it's not just. I mean, obviously, you you point out the you know the tensions in Scotland or in Wales, which have yeah, a, a, as you point out in several different uh, chapters, um, different notions of what the nation or the people might be in the first place. But also just within England itself and how the kind of home counties become a symbol in many ways, but also um, a symbol that a lot of people reject. Uh, I I thought that was really well, well done throughout the work. Yeah. And and it partly relates to, you know, I suppose to, again, different experiences, you know, certain parts of certain parts of the country, you know, suffered um, bombing, you know, in a way that others didn't and that wasn't of course just regionalized i mean kind of urban areas were very significantly impacted obviously kind of coventry birmingham belfast and um, liverpool you know so it, these cities you know very much were affected by bombing as well as course uh, as london was however in certain other parts of the north and midlands of, of england for instance there was where there wasn't much impact in terms of you know, and on a day-to-day concern, there was this sense that, you know, okay, you know, there's some, you know, 
there is there is this kind of residual tension that somehow there's more focus on you know the problems in London however you know there's an element of guilt you know we're not really experiencing it in the same way and we recognize you know that that, that the impact on us isn't quite the same so so yeah the, the fact that people that there were different you know experiences in different contexts which which un, which also kind of cross cuts you know I suppose the more um the more straightforward kind of regional tensions, which 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 are in, ter- in wartime are building on, yeah, they're building on the the peacetime tensions as well. I th- your book finishes with like four extremely, um, I, I think, really well argued chapters, and your your work. I I I con- I'm conscious of the time that we probably can't talk about all of them, uh, but there's a chapter work fitness and play on. The, the kind of contested notion of what is fitness, how do we achieve military preparedness? There's a chapter on called Sport in Everyday Life in Wartime that looks at what everyday life even means. And this one in particular, I mean, I have everyday life in the title of my book, and I was like, I needed to read this book first. Um, <laughs> I could have used this. Uh, a, a chapter on broadcasting and wartime sport and how sports broadcasting changes and then the final chapter on sport war in the nation and complicating this idea of uh, the people's war and the nation's war uh, so matt do you have a preference about which ones we're we able to talk about i think it, we'd be really rushing and doing injustice yeah, if we talk, tried to talk about all of them but well i mean how about i mean i'm i, I think I've, I've hinted a couple of times um at the kind of how important i suppose looking at, at personal narratives was for me yeah. in the book. Um, and so chap- the, the, the chapter you mentioned on kind of sport uh, and everyday life and, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely not, by the way, I'm not, I'm, I'm not at all convinced that I've, I've nailed, you know, the huge amount of, you know, uh, debates around what, what, you know, how historians deal with notions of everyday life. I, I barely, I barely scratched the surface and I was aware of that. Um, in terms of kind of trying to frame it, but it was it was clear to me that I had to have something about this because um, uh, because it was I think one of the key parts of my argument was I think that um, just as as an element of certain people's lives, not everyone's by any means, but certain num- number of pe- people's lives, sport became a part of the everyday, and the everyday became incredibly significant in a wartime context you know it effectively the everyday became politicized you know people every what people do in every moment of the day kind of almost becomes an, an element that, that is important to us how they spend their time you know how uh, to the extent that they're careful with their resources to the extent to which they are they are um uh, keeping themselves fit not for themselves or their family only but for their nation and you know doing doing their bits so i think it was really important that i that, that i had this chapter which addressed address this idea and that i really kind of made as much use as possible as a, of the kind of personal narratives that i'd that i really you know was absolutely searching for for this um i was helped i think i mentioned it a couple of times but i was helped a bit by um the fact that the, the um, historians of this period have the mass observation archive. So yes, for people I'm extremely who, jealous of mass observation. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is it's a great resource. I do a, I do um, I have done a kind of a course which uh, which is on kind of um, wartime Britain in, in war and peace, which kind of basically traces this period of mass observation. So basically, it was a social social research organisation established in the late 1930s and kind of uh, continued into the 1940s. It actually still exists. In a, in a in a in a different form, and so it's it's, it's still operating, um, and the archive is great because basically they had lots of different uh, forms of of um, uh, generating material, but the the two main ones were they would send investigators out to to just see what was happening and note down people's experiences. Um, but the one I use a little bit more, I think, is is the uh, what we call the directives or the national panel. So what would basically be sent out would be monthly questionnaires, effectively, to about 2,000 people. It varied the numbers during the war at different times who would respond to issues of the day and, um, you know, politics. What do you think of Churchill? What do you think of 
of, of Stafford Cripps. What do you think of various people? And, um, you know, how are things going in, you know, in, you know, parts of uh, Western Europe and the East and things like that. So various aspects of the war. But also, you know, they were very interested in just people's, people's ordinary lives. So what, what do you think about, you know, notions, what do you think about spiritualism? What are your views of religion? And sport was one of the things, not the major thing, but one of the things they were they were consistently interested in. So I particularly use one questionnaire from 1942, which was one of these times, early 1942, where there were lots of debates about, um, you know, should, should sport be more restricted? Should it continue? Which asked people their, their opinion on that question. So I was able to use that particularly in the first chapter. But the second, the, the second question was in really useful for me, particularly in this part of the book, which asked people about what were their experiences of war. And what you got often there was kind of potted, potted histories, but reflections as well on what sport was meant to them, or if it didn't mean much to them, you know, what it meant, what, why it didn't mean much to them, what it meant to other people. And so you can tap into those sorts of things to really get a sense of, you know, um, how sport had become a part of people's you know people's histories and their every their, their everyday existence at wartime so with that alongside you know kind of unpublished and and published memoirs which of which there are kind of more increasingly those that have been found out some great stuff at the um imperial war museum you know i was able to kind of get a sense of what in inverted commas ordinary people and uh, what their experiences uh, of sport in, in the war were which i think was really really valuable and probably in a sense my favorite probably probably the, the the bit of the book I liked most that I was kind of because I thought that was going to be something I was really going to struggle with and I got a little bit more than I expected yeah one of the things that tied together and for me at least this chapter on everyday life and then the next chapter on broadcasting it was the way in which sport could be used to promote a sense of normalcy within an abnormal situation mm-hmm. um, you know with this emphasis on sport, and the reminiscences that sporting mm-hmm. locations could and sporting events could produce for people kind of um, ex- as, as, a, as a way to like generate either in, in the, on the radio or in, in you know, in person, um, you know, positive feelings in an otherwise kind of like yeah. difficult <laughs> time and so those two chapters in particular and i was reading the part where these children are playing sport during the evacuation and that's like a way to remain kind of tied in and they're inviting their parents to come to sports days and i'm like how i'm just thinking to myself how hard that would have been um and then people listening to the radio listen you know them finding the right sports stars to talk about the big events of the 1930s to bring it up so they can kind of reminisce and how that helped promote morale in this otherwise difficult time I, that was really yeah. i think a great part of the book yeah no i mean it, it became because one because one of the interesting things in a way i mean i know we started by saying you know both of us i think you know oh it's amazing how much sport was going on which is true <clears throat> but i think particularly in dealing with the um the, the kind of chapter on, on the bbc and radio and broadcasting wartime sport was the fact that yeah there was a lot going on but there wasn't as much going on as in peacetime. So the, the kind of key role the BBC played in, in ensuring that, that sport, which they recognised very early on, was, was one of a number of things which were going to be crucial in terms of, um, you know, in terms of their wartime broadcasting policy. It stood alongside um, a, 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 a particular types of music and comedy and various other things as a key to what became called the Forces Programme. So the Forces Programme was particularly uh, for the, that imagined, um, well, imagined but real um, uh, service listener who would be listening perhaps at home but, 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 but um, abroad as well when they were on service. Um, and uh, so, the, so the BBC did a lot to facilitate as much sport taking place as, as possible, which I didn't, didn't realise until I kind of looked deep into the kind of the BBC written archives, that they were actively trying to trying to create competitions and create events. But obviously they could only do that to a certain extent. So they they came very early on 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 the significance of of kind of producing a kind of 
an approach uh, which focused on reminiscence of of sport in the in you know big matches, big clubs in in the thirties particularly, and you know going further back. So you know, sport sport becomes something in the imagination. Sport becomes something which is kind of connected to to notions of nostalgia and how how the 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 listener kind of imagines um, a pre-war and might look ahead to a post-war. And so I think it it, it, it um, has a very significant role in terms of that, um, which kind of feeds into to then kind of um, how, how, you know, uh, various authorities, but also ordinary clubs, think about what um, sport may look like in, in a period after the war, so how it links to reconstruction. So yeah, this idea of reminiscent sport and and the nostalgia associated with it was really was really something I was surprised about, but really becomes very important. And so these these programs which focus on that become the key at various times the key um, 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 sports programs which are broadcast on the BBC. And that same kind of you know imagination of sport continues into your final chapter. And it's funny that you said oh. You know, I was worried that this wasn't enough for a book because reading your last chapter, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's like four books here. (laughs) And you even (laughs) at times you kind of remark, you know, like, oh, you know, more research needs to be done on this or, you know, there's this interesting thing here. And then, you know, it's like you you devote a couple pages to it, but I can see it being a whole book all on its own, Uh, not to not to scoop any future projects of yours. But, um, you know, anyone anyone who's in British history and is looking for projects, this last chapter is chockers with them. Um, But I I think, you know, the, the. just to link it with the with the radio chapter, I mean, the role that cricket plays in people's imagination of what they're fighting for um, is pretty important. So I, I wonder if you can talk to us about this last chapter, because I do think it was a big chapter. It's obviously an important chapter where you try to bring back a lot of these threads uh, back to this question of the people's war. And you even kind of try to separate out what the nation is versus what the people are in the people's war. And so I, I guess I was hoping you could unpack this last chapter for us, because it's really rich, um, really rich final chapter. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one, because it was, um, it was the chapter where, um, which probably explains the, 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 the fact that there were lots of things which we talked about for a little bit, and then might have been developed more, that, that it was the one where, oh, you know, I found some material here. Now this needs to go in the final chapter. <laughs> this needs to go in the final because because there was so in a way I think what I was trying to do with this chapter is is you know it can be read on its own but it really I think picks up you know as you said a number of the threads which which really are running through the book you know the debates throughout the book and um, which is the extent to which sport becomes how it becomes seen and how the narratives around sport um, are, are connected to those of the nation. And and how far um, uh, it became, it, it was argued about in terms of uh, you know the key debates around the people's war. That this this is a this is a war which we're all in together. You know, despite class, you know, despite our, our class divisions and, and despite those things, and what, whatever those divisions, things are unified, and we need to kind of connect those together. So, for instance, I was I was particularly interested in um, things like the way in which you know, sporting metaphors were used, you know, by the press in various contexts of the war. And there's, there's lots of examples of that. There's these kind of great examples where, um, you know, BBC journalists and other journalists would kind of, uh, which did happen, would kind of, kind of watch um, um, uh, air, air battles taking place during the Battle of Britain and would, would um, commentate on them as if they were, you know, sporting events. Um, and so that was that was very common, and there was, but but it also generated an, a fair amount of criticism from those who would say, you know, it, it's this idea is, you know, the, the kind of the kind of um, George Orwell idea, you know, um, uh, war by another means, and you know, so people would argue that that was the case, but would also, you know, <laughs> undermine it very significantly and say, well, actually, you know, um, we have to think about this in very different ways. This is not this is not sport. Things are more important in those sense. So you also had so you had those sorts of debates, um, and I think I was also interested in terms of how 
how the war connected with ideas of uh, of, of kind of uh, assumed ideas of fair play and fairness and sportsmanship. These I, these notions of uh, of uh, the, how, how the British projected themselves in relation to sport, but but actually which which went well beyond sport. I mean, in fact, just recently, uh, again, uh, a book that I would have really been, uh, uh, usefully used for this book had, had it been published at the time. I just reviewed a book which is about um, by by. Um, uh, I can forget the name of the, the author, which is, is about a kind of history of fair play and the narrative and discourse of fair play. And that comes into this book as well, you know, the extent to which we can use, we can apply those sorts of ideas, which are significant in the way which we imagine the British play sport and the extent to which we can actually apply those to, to warfare. You know, so can the language be be similar? Can we talk about it in in similar sorts of ways? So, So I guess, yeah, in terms of, and then it goes on to. I mean, we talked about we talked about the debates over uh, over Sunday sport. You know how um, kind of outsiders were treated, and how you know uh, issues in terms of race were were um, um, dealt with in terms of the war. So those are all important here. So I think overall, what what I was kind of trying to do with the chapter was really just understand the extent to which um, sport. <laughs> Sport became elevated uh, in in not not so much in terms of what took place, but in terms of the way in which it was positioned in in the narrative, in the ordinary narrative um, of kind of uh, you know newspapers and and others. The extent to which it became elevated as is a, a really key aspect of the nation, um, and the way in which it was considered to encapsulate the British people. So you're right, there is this tension, I think, in these debates around, you know, what's the, what the nation is and what the people are. But I think what I, what I felt very much is that even when a lot of sport wasn't taking place, sport became more central and more core to, to these debates of how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves at, at these times of tension and stress than even before. And so I think that was one of the things I wanted to explore um, in this final chapter. Well, one of the things I kind of drew from it, maybe this is just me, is that, um, you know, wartime British sport wasn't unified. It wasn't harmonious, but it was and it wasn't unchanging, but it was British. <laughs> and yeah. there were all of these other influences, but they weren't as strong an influence and maybe not much of an influence at all compared to kind of the pre-war or existing fractures within this nation, right? Uh, that yeah. continued in in meaningful ways and kind of, um, you know, people could imagine a kind of more harmonious post-war, but actually, as we know, like that didn't, that wasn't what happened per yeah. se. Um, but that there was something kind of, that there, the plus a change, you know, things changed, but the, the, the mm -hmm. fractures within society didn't, didn't heal over. But they also weren't Americanized or Polishized or yeah. in, influenced in, in, in major ways by this global catastrophe that was happening or happening around them. They were mostly or most strongly influenced by things that had already happened in Britain and that were yeah. happening. Do you know what? And I think you're right about that. I think that's that's kind of, although I probably don't articulate it as clearly as you have then. I think that kind of is what 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 it argues to a degree in the last chapter. And you know, thinking about it, that's also something that I'm. I don't know. I'm kind of slightly. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure that I'm in. Putting it in another context, I mean, I'm one of the things I'm very interested in. Kind of one of the things I'm working kind of working on at the moment you know going forward is is um you know looking at i'm very interested in the kind of transnational links you know and kind of transnational histories and things like that which i've i've written in other contexts are really important even in 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 the sense of quite often you know the british see themselves as fairly insular in terms of sport um anyway, in, in certain contexts anyway um and i think Ultimately, the picture I do present here, despite the fact that, you know, at various times, you know, cities like London and other cities were kind of very kind of uh, uh, multinational and involved, you know, and people uh, had, had kind of American servicemen, people 
people, as you say, from kind of Polish Polish forces, free French forces, you know, lots of people, you know, intermingling. Um, you know, I think the I think the picture we have is kind of sport in in, in wartime is is re- is relatively insular, and so in that sense, despite what I've said elsewhere, I think there is an element where um, the wartime period is a slight interruption from what was happening elsewhere, which is interesting as well because I think I think in terms of the First World War, from what I've understood about that, that isn't the case at all. So, so yeah, um, I, I think I do certainly in terms of the way people saw the values associated with sport and how that connected to so-called national values. Um, I do think, you know, you know, that, 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 that is very much connected to a traditional notion uh, of Britishness, which is, is felt the need to protect that is, is very high on people's agenda. I, I, I want to um, highlight and before I ask a final question, um, one of the things that we, I, I didn't, this is how I brought up the questions, but uh, kind of ties into the last thing you said, which is uh, the way in which these kind of traditional ideas were actually quite flexible. So in that final chapter, of course, you have a big section on uh, the role or the kind of reception of black athletes in Britain. And although it's a big change that black athletes are increasingly present, um, they're kind of in the context of the war seen as uh, that their participation is seen as necessary as part of fair play and as a contrast to what the United States is doing, trying to kind of preserve color barriers. And and another thing that's often comes up in your book, and you bring it up a lot, and I didn't bring it up um, in chatting with you, is uh, the increasing role of women in all of these sporting movements, but that oftentimes their participation is couched in very traditional ways, like working class women make claims to, to sporting leisure on the basis of their improvement of their labor and things like that, rather than as a kind of challenge to, as a kind of gender challenge to, yeah. you know, so that's a really big part of your book. And I, we, I didn't bring that up, but for readers who are going, hey, what ha- what about women? What <laughs> That is in the book, I promise. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just just really, yeah, yeah, please, yeah, just really quickly. I mean, yeah, on on the issue of race, I mean, I think, you know, without going into huge details about it, I I think it's crucial. I mean, elsewhere, I've written quite a lot about um, boxing and the color bar, and I think, you know, it's more than just boxing, but I think in terms of that story, the sec, what was happening in the Second World War in Britain was is absolutely crucial to understand that and how attitudes change. On on the on the role of women, I think you're right. I think. I made the decision early on and I think it was the right decision to, I didn't want a chapter just on women, you know, that's, that makes no sense because it, they were so important to, at various points. I mean, I think, I think attitudes to women workers are actually a key part of uh, the fourth chapter where I talk about kind of work fitness and play. Yeah. Um, and I think I am dealing with, yeah, both the tension between traditional attitudes um, but also the, the 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 ability to be flexible at certain times, and the fact that many women were pushing against those sorts of ideas. And I think, although you know, I, obviously, I encourage people to to read the book to find out more about that. I've also kind of written a little bit more about that with Raf Nicholson. So Raf, um, kind of colleague, who, who's who, she actually wrote her um, uh, MA thesis on women. Uh, in the Second World War, and she was um, generous enough to let me have a look at that while I was writing the book. And at various times, I said to her, "This is really great. You need to publish this." <laughs> and so, when we were given the up- we were given the opportunity to to, to write a piece for a special issue of um, Sporting History. Um, I said, "Well, Raf, we need to we need to we need to draw on your resources here because she had some great material, um, which I think added added significantly to to what I had." Um, so I think. I think although there's some good stuff in there, I think that's also the place to go to an article we wrote in Sporting History, which is, I think, a much broader encapsulation of, you know, how, how rich this, this, um, this history of, of women's sport in the Second World War was. All right, uh, Matt, final, final question I asked people, and you've hinted to it already. Um, what are you working on now? What can we look forward to reading from you next? Okay, so the thing I'm, I'm kind of working on hoping to finish reasonably soon is a, is a, a kind of um, uh, slightly more than a textbook, but it's a, it's a kind of general synthesis, um, which I've called World of Sport, which is about kind of the, I suppose it's about the link between sports history and transnational history and the way in which sports his, history, I think, ha- 
that the issue of sport can feed into what we understand about transnational history. And so that kind of that kind of it was also arranged thematically, but it takes you through kind of the mid nineteenth century um, through to the twentieth century. What I want through to the the nineteen sixties. What I really want to do with that book is, I think, more than anything else, um, there there is some primary source material, but I want to point out the incredible work that people are already doing, which even if they don't kind of um, label it as tran- transnational history, I think is really important to those who are doing kind of transnational and global history. I think sport has a lot to give to that and there's some great work already going on. But also, I think, point ahead to, to how more can be done in terms of that. So that's the first, that's the main thing I'm doing. And then uh, an idea that I've got after that, um, which which may or may not develop, is is a, a history of women's boxing in Britain. The, uh, well, I mean, a history of women's boxing in Britain definitely needs to be written. And um, this, uh, you know, history world of sports sounds really uh, important and useful i'm thinking immediately like that there's a huge um there's a huge gap in the in the kind of teaching market there's no really good new kind of readable accounts of sport how it how it emerges in a in a in a kind of broad way and how it's linked to kind of contemporary questions maybe that as you're pointing to transnational history um, but these kind of contemporary historiographical questions. So it sounds like it will be a very useful book for sports historians teaching uh, our increasingly um, common history courses in sports. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> it means I've not wasted my time, hopefully. <laughs> Great. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to a new uh, Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Matthew Taylor. He's a professor in history at De Montfort University. He's also the author of Sport and the Home Front, Wartime Britain at Play, 1939 to 45. It is out with Rutledge in their studies in modern British history in 2020. Um, it's great. Pick it up, read it, and um, wish you'd read it two years ago. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. Thanks, Keith.